Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast fully dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, we have a very special guest, Camille Schreier. Camille graduated with honors from Virginia Tech in 2018 with dual Bachelor of Science degrees in biochemistry and systems biology. She is currently pursuing a Doctor of Pharmacy degree at Virginia Commonwealth University. In 2019, Camille earned the title Miss Virginia after performing a science experiment, the catalytic decomposition of hydrogen peroxide, as her onstage talent. In December 2019, Camille was named Miss America 2020, again after showcasing her science skills. Camille has also been featured on national and international media outlets, including The Today Show, CNN, BBC, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, Inside Edition, The Weather Channel, Southern Living, Canada's CTV, Germany's RTL, and many more. She also partnered with PBS to produce a web series called Cooking Up Science with with Miss America. We'll provide links to her website and some notable appearances in the episode bio. Camille was diagnosed with classical Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome as a child, and she was born with dislocated hips that required procedures to correct, along with the use of a back brace. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first hear about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and how were you diagnosed? Well, first of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I found out that I had Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome in a much more streamlined way than most zebras, as I like to call us. I was probably 11 years old. And I was in middle school and got like a routine scoliosis screen from my school nurse. And that's a pretty typical thing. I don't know if they do that with students anymore, but my school did. And my school nurse said, you know, I think you might have like a mild case of scoliosis. So I'm going to like send you home with a note and tell your parents. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I went home and my mom was not surprised. I have multiple cousins with scoliosis, and many of them have corrective Harrington rods in their back. And so it was really not surprising that I too would have scoliosis. It runs in our family. Maybe there's another link to why it runs in our family. I think that was something that came about a little bit later, but um, I went to a children's hospital in Philadelphia, St. Christopher's Hospital specifically, And I met with a pediatric orthopedic surgeon to monitor my progress with scoliosis as I kind of matured. And immediately upon getting in that room and him physically examining me, he was like, there is something else going on here. And I remember him kind of manipulating my joints and my fingers and then walking over to my mom and saying, can you do that too? And he told us, he's like, I really think that you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so I'm going to refer you to a geneticist. And so literally first appointment with this doctor, he identified that I probably had a genetic condition and that my mom had it too. And that was confirmed by a geneticist very shortly thereafter. And so for me, it's really interesting because I grew up always knowing that I had EDS. And I never went through the struggles of being told that I was lying or, you know, not really like making symptoms up. But my mom always had gone through that. And we got diagnosed at the exact same time. So she was in her probably 40s at that point, And I'm 11. 
And so we had very vastly different experiences. And I think that in terms of our prognosis and how we have, you know, endured the disease throughout time, I think I've done a lot better than my mom because I had the knowledge prior to do a lot of preventative care. So uh, that's kind of the story of how I found out about this. But uh, now it's been part of my life for for a while. And uh, I'm really lucky to, to have a pretty mild form, but I absolutely do have EDS. And that's another, you know, misconception is that, you know, everybody with EDS is in a wheelchair or is really severely impacted. And it's a spectrum disorder. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's what's so important and what I've really started to learn about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing um, that story of your experience. It's so interesting to see a generational divide like that. And in a way, your story gives me hope that maybe slowly and in some regions of the country, um, there is starting to be more awareness. And for so long, I've thought that that was so necessary in this process because once providers see, oh, these aren't just patients with a lot of problems that I can't seem to solve because I don't know much about, maybe there can start to be a shift in the perspective to, oh, these are patients with some real challenges. And if I identify them, I can really help these people a lot. So you know, maybe that mentality is um, slowly getting out there. So it's great. I to hope hear. it is. I really think it is. And I think that that's a testament to, you know, in, in 2007, I think is when I was diagnosed. So that's like a light year in genetics mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot more providers are starting to be more frequently faced with patients with um, EDS diagnoses Mm -hmm. and starting to understand them a little bit more. But I do think that the advocacy for patients to understand what's going on and for providers to understand what's going on, it's more than just like a diagnosis on a piece of paper, right? It makes Mm -hmm. us feel like we're not crazy. Mm -hmm. It explains the struggles that we go through. And it also allows us to provide the information maybe to a provider that doesn't have that background information to give them the opportunity to understand our disease state and how we need to be treated. So that's been something I've been a huge advocate for is awareness. Absolutely. That was tremendously well said. And I think that's such a critically important message. And it, it reminds me, it dovetails with a comment you made earlier, which was so important also about how this is a spectrum disorder. And, you know, it's so important to keep that in mind because, Um, there's so many different manifestations, you know, sometimes even within a single patient in their lifetime, they can have, you know, different symptoms, Um, you know, obviously individual to individual can be very different. And so um, in terms of getting that awareness out, I think that's a critical part for the public to have a better understanding of, because, you know, there is so much in life that's driven by experience. And if you meet one person with Ehlers-Danlos, they might be on one end of the spectrum or the other or in between, who knows? And, you know, unfortunately, that's not going to give the picture for the condition as a whole. So I think that was a really important point. And I'm so glad to hear, too, that you feel that you've had a much easier experience in the medical system having this explanation Mm -hmm. um, than, like, for example, like your parents' generation. And that's so critical, too. That's a point I've kind of really been thinking about for a long time, it's like, I really think this condition can be managed um, a lot more effectively if there is that earlier awareness and, you know, people aren't pushing their joints too far and damaging them. And so just, and at least having the knowledge allows you to make a lot more informed personal choices for your body, I think so. 
I definitely think that it was the personal choices that had the best impact on my long-term, you know, success with EDS. The interesting thing is when we talk about the medical system in EDS, I never really was followed other than by that original orthopedist. And I now as an adult, as a 26-year-old, just went to my first appointment focused around my EDS like two weeks ago. And so I really haven't had to manage the healthcare system around EDS because it hasn't affected me the same way. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because now and this year I have felt more affected by the EDS than ever before. And so now I've been seeking out those types of resources and it's been difficult. And so I don't empathize for those people that have to do that in, for their whole life or have had to do that for much longer than I And so it's interesting because I have the disorder, but I don't always feel like I've gone through the same struggles as some other people with EDS. Um, And I've had, I haven't had to, you know, explain myself or feel like I had to advocate for the disease that I do have with people that don't believe me. But it remains to be seen if I I have to do that in the future, because I still think that that might come Mm -hmm. about in my life. And so, again, it's one of those things where I can then be the educator, especially being someone with a pharmacy and a medical background, Mm -hmm. being able to do that in a way that's really communicable to a provider. Um, And that's important for all of us to know how to advocate for ourselves in a medical situation. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's so unfortunate to have to have that concern about what is the future going to look like. And I think for a lot of people, that is a big part of the distress um, you know, just not knowing, okay, how much are people going to understand? How much accommodation am I really going to need? You know, and especially when, you know, if you, when you kind of grow up and you're in just the hypermobilities or the loose joints phase, um, you know, a lot of us don't kind of experience the pain or the symptoms, or maybe we're running on adrenaline. So those things can really catch up to us over time. And, you know, the more it's kind of, like a, I don't know, house of cards or something, but the more issues you start to have, you know, they kind of, they can snowball too at a certain point. And so it, it, that's incredibly difficult. And uh, like you said, again, highlights um, the need for, for better awareness, not just in the medical profession, but in the community as well. Cause absolutely it is, it's definitely difficult to navigate. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of folds into my next question. I I saw in an interview in Forbes, um, you described how you had um, some issues with crowded teeth, and then you had orthodontic work done, and then you saw a spine specialist, and then another person for your joints, and it wasn't really connected that EDS was the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so once you've gotten the diagnosis, it kind of puts it together under this bigger picture um, umbrella. And, um, you know, so I think that, that, that really describes, you know, a really significant issue that faces patients who are, you know, treating this in a really piecemeal kind of, you know, piece of the body by piece, uh, way, you know, do you have thoughts on how to improve this issue and, you know, get care that's sort of more, um, you know, umbrella or sort of holistically uh, inclined? You know, that's a hard question because even for the best providers, right, if I'm a a little kid with crowded teeth and some stomach issues and headaches and sore joints, you're going to say, yeah, you're a little kid. Like you you need braces and, you know, you're growing and 
yeah, your stomach is adjusting to certain things. Maybe you have some food allergies. Like it's very difficult to sort out and be like, oh, wow, like all these different things actually are symptoms of this Mm -hmm. genetic disorder that has to do with collagen. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, to think about that. Now, in terms of, you know, the holistic piece, I was actually just at the Medical University of South Carolina, uh, you know, shadowing a researcher who is working on trying to find a gene for hypermobile EDS. Um, It's called the Norris Lab, and they do such a wonderful job. And they were talking about having this concept where a university health system like MUSC in South Carolina might be able to come up with like an EDS clinic where all of the different providers who are knowledgeable about EDS are all in the same place for that patient. So once that person knows maybe that they have EDS, it would be easier for them to go and, you know, see a gastroenterologist, go and see, mm-hmm. you know, a orthodontist or a dentist, be able to see somebody to treat um, like their orthopedic issues, but all with the context of this particular disease state, kind of like a cancer center. Mm-hmm. And that would be wonderful. But the difficulty is what do you do if you don't know that you have it? Mm-hmm. And so that is an added issue. Now, as a science person, I think that having those genetic tests available that not weren't necessarily available when I was young mm-hmm. are going to be really different for that, where we could screen for EDS in a much easier manner and be able to say, oh, well, of course, this child has EDS and that explains a lot of what's going on and be able to kind of streamline them into the proper way. Mm-hmm. Now, that takes a lot of research, that takes a lot of funding, that takes a lot of understanding of the genetic and kind of physiological basis of EDS, which we think we know, but we don't really know a lot about. Mm -hmm. And we talk about a spectrum disorder, and you think about the genetic basis where there could be multiple genes that Mm -hmm. cause each type of EDS, and it might be different in each person, and how can you really be able to target that with a test? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of difficulty in how you would do that. But if we had a test for, I mean, we have, let me be more specific. We have tests mm-hmm. for most types of EDS with the exception of the hypermobile, which is why that Norris lab was so focused on it. Mm-hmm. But if we could be able to have really good all-encompassing tests for young kids that were cost-effective, that would be an easy an easy screening mechanism. That would be awesome. Or at least if we could kind of get those checklists and be like, you know what, at this point, if this kid has this many issues, we should probably look for, you know, a genetic disorder like EDS. Mm-hmm. That would be a, an easier way to kind of find our way through a diagnosis rather than just trying to connect all of these pieces. So if I could wave my EDS magic wand, I would create a lovely cost-effective genetic test that would be really accurate for all of them. And then the idea of having a center somewhere um, and educating providers on how to effectively treat EDS patients in those different disease states would just be, I mean, I think really life-changing for a lot of patients. I completely agree. I, that sounds like the dream, and I couldn't have put the dream any better than that if I had tried. I completely agree, and uh, you know the the thought of kind of a one stop center to go um, for Ehlers Danlos is really appealing. And I've seen this model with other conditions, and there's just so much support available. I think that's a big part of it too. I mean, it would be nice to have kind of a, a network of people around the clinic, you know, who you could talk to different people who are maybe your age or have similar interests, you know, to you. And I think that kind of buddy system also 
it's definitely helped me, you know, talking oh, yes. to patients who have similar experiences. And so it's just, it's such a beautiful dream. It sort of like spins off other kind of possibilities of what could happen around that. So, yeah. But I would say the camaraderie of having EDS is very unique. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in, the, in a good situation, it can be very positive and encouraging. I've seen some like EDS groups that get very, you know, um, kind of just sad because all of these people are in really difficult situations and it can be very kind of, you know, it it brings you down a little Mm -hmm. bit. But I will say that I have formed friendships through people that have the same disorder. I met a, a, a girl my age at the dog park like a couple months ago who was like, yeah, I have some joint issues. And I was like, we kind of looked at each other and I was like, is it genetic? And she's like, yes. And we realized that we both had EDS and now we're friends because we're connected and we're in the same area and we're looking for resources to support each other. I mean, through a lot of this, I found so many people that I feel like I can, that we understand each other on a different level because we've been through these types of struggles. Absolutely, so yeah. it's been an interesting thing to have because I, I enjoy the camaraderie of understanding the difficulties of others and having someone be able to understand me. Um, but it's not always the best reason to become friends with somebody, but it's an added benefit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I completely agree. And um, I'm just reminded again of earlier, you you were mentioning the the Norris Lab and kind of the dream to yes. you know, have this clinic. And I'm so glad you mentioned them because the work they're doing is just so important. And, and you know, they also make the point, you know, they've found aging, they don't know how many else there are out there. And I think that's a really important point to make um, because, you know, the diagnoses have such um, big significance in a lot of different ways. So I'm so glad that him and his team, they just seem incredible. And I'm just so glad that they're on this research. It's really exciting. It was, I got to visit the lab in person in, I guess it was early August, late July. And it was just incredible to be able to see an entire research facility dedicated toward a disease that I struggle with. Now, mm-hmm. I don't have HEDS. I don't think, I still think that I have classical, despite that I was diagnosed so long ago. Mm-hmm. But for other patients like me who don't have a diagnosis and are looking for one, to see a researcher so dedicated. Mm-hmm. And his senior PhD student actually has HEDS and has been affected for many years and is part of the reason why that project began. And so to really hear the story behind all of this and the impact that they have been able to make so quickly, um, the support that they've gotten from the EDS community. I mean, I was blown away during my visit there. And it made me, even as someone who has this disease and does a lot of advocacy, it reinvigorated my desire to want to make a difference in the EDS world because I was able to see that there is so much to be learned still and so much impact that we can make. And also, of course, I love science. And so being able to see a research facility that I would you know, want to work in anyway, really dedicate their time to something that is so impactful to me. Just really can't say more good things about it. It was just so wonderful to be able to go there. Absolutely. I'm so glad you had that experience. It sounds really, truly moving. And yeah, the story of the lab, you know, how the researchers got interested in it. I mean, it's it's just incredibly inspiring. And it's so important for us to see examples of positive change being made yes. in the world. You know, that's that was kind of 
the thinking behind this podcast originally, it's like so much of the discussion around so many genetic conditions, but definitely EDS is just so relentlessly negative. And there's so much focus on what we can't to do and what we shouldn't do. And it's just, you know, it's hard, sort of hard enough to focus on what you can do to the extent that you can, you know, but it, it's just so motivating in that process to see that, you know, we're not in this alone. People really are working on this and, you know, maybe treatment in the not so, you know, distant future will even improve our lives even more. So that's very exciting. I think we are getting there and it's, I mean, there's plenty of scientists that are doing the work. Um, the, the, the frustrating part about science is that it's slow mm-hmm. <laughs> and we need the time to be able to figure out how to solve these problems. But gosh, can they make an impact when, when we do find the, find mm-hmm. the source? You know, it's funny. I, I was just thinking what we were talking about is trying to w- raise awareness. You know, like the ideal would be a, a cheap genetic test to kind of um, get to the bottom of this so people would know very early on in life. And I've often thought, like, could there be some kind of social media challenge, like the ice bucket challenge, but like the Gumby or like the bendy (laughs) fingers challenge where you get people to do the Biden scale and video it? And I I don't know. I mean, I just I think about sort of creatively, like, how do you get people because it's so strange to have this condition that's so prevalent. Um, You know, we're finding out more and more about how it's not nearly as rare as it initially seemed. And so, but it's hard for people to understand, well, if this is really so prevalent, why don't I see it all the time? And it's like, well, you, you do see people with healer scales all the time. You just don't really realize, you know, so yeah, it, it's a difficult, um, a really difficult problem to tackle for sure. Yes, it is. But I think we will get there eventually. It just might take some more time. But in, in all seriousness, I mean, from 2007, when I was diagnosed now to 2021, I mean, we have come so far. And so if you think of that time period, Mm -hmm. you know, starting now and going forward, where will we be in another, you know, 13, 15 years? What will that look like? And I think it's really encouraging. That's a great point. Very exciting to think about. Um, And speaking of future research, um, this kind of brings me to my next question. Um, There, uh, there's a researcher, Dr. Dr. Antonio Balbina, um, who practices in Barcelona, working with um, lots of patients with Ehlers-Danlos and um, he talks a lot about the advantages that people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome have and other, and other connective tissue disorders. Um, for example, in a previous episode of the podcast, he talked about the fact that people with EDS often respond better under pressure and stress. Um, and I've found in talking to many, many people who have Ehlers-Danlos, I'm, I'm frequently struck by how smart, how sensitive, how observant they are. Um, you know, a lot of them are are really skilled at what they do, whether it's research or advocacy, um, a lot of people that are just incredible listeners, I think, um, do you have any, and so I guess because of that experience with talking to these patients and how much of the discussion around this condition is so negative. And then in light of Dr. Bobina's comments about how, you know, he's kind of observed some, um, you know, potential advantages, not to say that there aren't extraordinary obstacles, of course, of course. But um, I guess I've been asking people recently, do you have any kind of superpowers or or skills that you think of, um, you know, as either coming from your experience with Ehlers-Danlos directly or just kind of the experience of living with it? You know, that's hard. 
I mean, it's interesting to think about like the the benefits and detriments of a genetic disorder. And, you know, I talk about how EDS couldn't be, not to say that it's not detrimental in our lives in so many ways. Mm -hmm. So don't let me make it sound like it's not, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily fatal. And Mm -hmm. so that's why it continues through our population. And it doesn't really just die out like a lot of genetic disorders that would be a lot more detrimental in terms of like actually uh, your ability to get through life. Mm -hmm. Um, It just makes life really frustrating sometimes Mm -hmm. and really difficult and painful Mm -hmm. um, for the most part. Mm -hmm. But in terms of advantages, I mean, it's hard to say, but I I would say for me, it's a patience and understanding of the, the fact that life isn't linear and it can change every single day not just in my health, but just in life. Mm -hmm. Because when I deal with a condition where I'm not sure, there's a lot of unknown, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm comfortable with the idea of the unknown. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I wake up in the morning. I don't know how I'm going to be able to cognitively function on that day where I have that event that I'm looking forward to and it's really important. Mm -hmm. I might wake up and be totally you know, not feeling well and sick and feel like I can't put words together and feel like I'm in a brain fog and Mm -hmm. be in pain or pull something or, you know, dislocate my jaw the day before. Like, I don't know what's going to happen and I just have to be comfortable with the unknown. So I think when I look at my life as a whole, I'm more, I'm better equipped to deal with situations that deal with the unknown because I deal with the unknown all the time. So I would say that that's probably the biggest thing that having EDS has taught me. And also, in addition to that, just being empathetic for those who have or potentially have things going on in their lives that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Because people look at me and sometimes don't give me much empathy because they think I'm just a healthy 26-year-old girl who has her life together. But I'm like, mm-hmm. I am falling apart and I'm just trying to you know, not drown here. Mm -hmm. So just cut me a little slack. So I tend to, I think, cut people some slack when stuff goes wrong because they don't need to tell me if there's something going on in their life. That's not my right to know, but there could be, and Mm -hmm. you never really know. Mm -hmm. I think those are fantastic superpowers. And I think it's incredibly wise uh, that you've been able to intuit this lesson about the uncertainty of life. Um, you know, I, that's still something that, you know, I am definitely working through on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's very difficult to accept the phenomenon that you're talking about that, you know, you can just wake up one day and, you know, feel terrible out of the blue and, um, and, you know, lots of different sort of complications can arise that can complicate things in different ways. Um, and, so I think that's, it's great that you've kind of learned to, you know, maybe be in the moment a little bit more or not sort of be as uh, control minded about the future, because really all of us have very little control over the future, as we've seen, yeah. you know, over the past year and a half. Things <laughs> that's true. <laughs> really sideways and it's not our, you know, fault. It's, you know, totally kind of above um, us. So, yeah, I think that's a great lesson. And then I think the empathy and the humility. I mean, you're you're talking about having a little bit more kind of patience and understanding for other people having experienced, you know, having different symptoms and then having people be skeptical because you don't necessarily look like what they think that 
condition or complication should look like. And that's, that's really tough. So I think it's awesome that you've taken those lessons out of the experience. That's really great. Well, hey, we got to take something positive out of a tough situation sometimes, right? Exactly. Definitely. Um, and yeah, I guess that this kind of brings us to, um, it, you know, to the extent you feel comfortable talking about the symptoms um, you experience from Ehlers-Danlos or related conditions, um, you know, I guess, how, how do you generally describe them? And, you know, maybe what are your kind of um, primary or more, most current um, challenges? Well, I would say that through through my life, most of my challenges were at a younger age. So I had the, the dislocated hips at birth. I had a lot of problems with my teeth, which I didn't realize were EDS related. So I had a palate expander. I had two sets of braces. I had extractions just to be able to fit all my teeth in my mouth. Oh, wow. Um, I had scoliosis. Painful. Yeah, it was painful. But you know what? My teeth look great now, <laughs> so it was worth it. Nice. My, my go. teeth are too big for my mouth. And I didn't realize that – and having a small palate was – that those things were symptoms of EDS. So that was something that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of, um, you know, just – smaller injuries, but I would trip and fall as a kid. I was really clumsy. I ended up falling and snapping my collarbone in kindergarten. Um, I swam on a team and I participated on a lot of sports teams and had a ton of stomach issues where I would struggle on the field. I would, I would feel sick and nauseous and I had GERD. I had, um, gosh, what else? I had so many things. I had chronic shin splints. My hips hurt. Like, everything. Like I was just like, come on, I'm like a kid, right? Mm-hmm. I would say that once I stopped playing sports, like as I got out of high school, went to college, I stopped having a lot of the physical problems and started having more of like cognitive issues in terms of like extreme fatigue and tiredness and brain fog mm-hmm. and just issues focusing and, you know, keeping my energy levels up. Um, now, I should also mention a lot of the sports I played before were like not really high impact sports. So things like swimming and I did run track and field. That probably wasn't the best option for me, but you know, that's neither here nor there. But, you know, my symptoms have changed throughout my life. And I would say for the last five years, they've been really, really well managed and under control by no other means than the fact that I'm just very lucky and I haven't done anything differently and I've just been great. But <laughs> I took two years off of my graduate program and just went back this August. So it's been about four weeks. My, the end of my summer and as I began my graduate program, my symptoms got worse than they probably have been almost ever um, in terms of dysautonomia, which was not something that I had frequently struggled with, but had bouts of here and there. Mm -hmm. I had probably two really acute episodes just in the month of August where my blood pressure got really low. I thought I was going to collapse. I ended up eating salt packets, just trying to get myself back up. I was at events. I had to be able to continue on like I was working. And then the second one happened my first week of school. So I'm back at school trying to adapt to a very active day where I have to do a lot of walking around campus. I'm wearing a mask. So I'm kind of forgetting to drink water the same way that I normally am at home. And I got so dehydrated that first week of school that I thought I was going to collapse. And I thought I was having kidney dysfunction because I had shooting pain in my back. I was so sick. 
I was like, if this is my first week back in my graduate program, I'm not going to make it for the next three years. And I called my primary care doctor. I called my friends with EDS. I sat in my house for like three or three days, just drinking water and Gatorade. And it took me that long to recover from that one week of school. And I'm like, this is a very demanding program. If I'm going to have to do this every week, I'm literally not going to ever get any work done. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, this was, I had mentioned this, I, I, I saw an ADS related doctor for the first time since I was probably 15 or however old I was when I stopped growing and stopped seeing my orthopedist. And it was a primary care doctor here in Richmond, Virginia, who has some experience treating patients with dysautonomia, with autonomic nervous system disorders, and with EDS. And so I went and saw her and um, definitely had a lot of symptoms that she was able to identify. And um, she had some suspicions of what might be causing them. And a lot of it seems to stem from my neck. My neck is really chronically stiff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can then you know, cause other problems in our body in terms of the way that it pushes on certain, you know, nerves and vessels and the way that it, you know, it's part, your cervical spine is really important. We need that to, to function and be healthy and I might have some problems going on there. But um, the moral of the story is after seeing her and after taking some new supplements and taking better care of my hydration, I've been drinking some liquid IV packets every day and some electrolytes to be able to pump that up. I've been able to recover a little bit better, but I have not struggled that long, that much for a long time. And um, definitely was new for me to have the type of really severe dysautonomia problems that I hadn't had frequently in my life before. And now I'm having some other related joint problems at the same time. So I'm just kind of like, if it's not one thing, it's another right now with EDS and then trying to also manage very demanding academic schedule at the same time has been hard. Um, And frankly, it's just, you know, my university understands that I have it. And so they've given me the ability to make accommodations in my testing schedule or the way that I do things in the, during the day. Uh, But it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with and it's something that all of us have to go through and it's kind of unpredictable, but I'm feeling better, but that's kind of how the EDS affects me. Um, not so much in like dislocations and surgeries, but more so um, systemic kind of um, struggles with, you know, my blood pressure and with being able to focus and being able to continue through my day and fatigue. That's more of the way that I feel my EDS. Um, and, you know, it's just different. It doesn't make it better or worse than anybody else's, but it's just different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that it's been such a stressful time. I I relate, you know, very um, much to a, many of the things that you said. Um, I was just thinking back when you said, you know, you're around 26. I was thinking, you know, gosh, when did my symptoms kind of take a turn from, the manageable but annoying into, you know, really starting to kind of affect my quality of life and my ability to do activities of daily living. And I, I think I was about 27. It's hard to remember exactly, yeah. but somewhere in there. And it it is scary to have that shift from, you know, feeling like, yeah, maybe, you, you know, you get sick more than other people, you get a little dizzy sometimes, you know, kind of a grab bag of just strange, you know, you get some more stomach aches than people, you know, get more headaches, things that can maybe be explained to more, wow, I, you know, I'm really not 
bouncing back, you know, from these things like I used to. And so I think it's so useful for people to hear different patients' experiences of how their condition developed, how it changes, um, because, uh, you know, we all, you know, probably read quite a lot about the condition and it's often very sterile, you know, and it doesn't yeah. feel, um, it doesn't sort of have the, the human um, impact kind of animating behind it. And you're absolutely right about the importance of the cervical spine. That's something I've definitely struggled with a lot. And it's really strange how few, uh, it's really difficult to get an upright MRI here. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it's surprising. I, I was very lucky um, because a, a good friend of mine um, moved to Barcelona, and she was able to get me an appointment there um, to get an upright MRI in um, a few years ago, and and so I was able to um, you know meet Dr. Bobina as well, and. Um, and so it was, you know, great to finally get that upright MRI, but it was also scary to see how much my neck really bent. I mean, yeah. it was, you could really see the degree of compression and, you know, he pointed out sort of the different issues and it just, it, uh, it's kind of boggled my mind why it's so hard to get that here, but that's. <laughs> so. They are expensive machines. Mm -hmm. That's probably the number one reason. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but I would think they could there would be, they'd be able to bill a lot for the scans, but I, I don't, I guess I don't know how all that works. So, um, yeah, I guess, but leading to, I guess, you know, what is within our control and what we can yeah. do. Um, one of the lessons I've learned when, you know, researching connective tissue disorders is the importance of taking care of ourselves. And you just highlighted a lot of the things that you do, which I think are so important, you know, electrolytes are so key. You know, I definitely wish I'd learned about that earlier in my life because they can make such a big difference. Um, do you have other kind of go-to products or techniques um, or things that are, you know, really kind of lifesavers or, or important in your regimen? Yeah. Well, the electrolyte one is a new one for me and one that has been really impactful in a student situation and for people that have really active jobs. Uh, I also wish I had figured that out sooner, but you know, <laughs> this is okay. We figured it out now. Mm -hmm. um, for me, with the fatigue that I go through, I rely a lot on good rest. Mm -hmm. So I am not a person that can stay up till midnight and wake up at six and go to work the next day. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, go out late with my friends and then try to recover and go back and be productive over the weekend. If I don't get a consistent like eight plus hours of sleep a night, mm -hmm. I don't do well. Mm -hmm. And that's really inconvenient sometimes when I want to just be a person and be like, oh, I want to stay up late and do this. Mm -hmm. I will really, really hurt for the next couple days if I don't do that. Mm -hmm. Being a student, that becomes hard. Mm -hmm. How do I manage studying in a time that allows me to then take time, like, you know, just be done and go to bed and wake up at a normal time and go take my tests? So consistent, good rest. I also do a lot of naps. And so I joke about this because I am a shameless public napper. And I will take naps at my university during the day if I am struggling to focus. If I have like an hour of my lunch break where I am like really struggling because I am tired and I can't focus on the information that I'm learning. And I used to do this when I was working too, if I had like a lunch break. I would just find a place where I could kind of, you know, either sit back in a chair or find a place where I could just close my eyes for 20 or 30 minutes. And that is a huge tool that I use to allow myself to get through the day. 
So naps, um, bringing snacks with me um, just for sustained energy. I don't know if it's EDS related, but I'm one of those people that has to continue to eat throughout the day just to be able to feel, you know, consistently energized and focused. So bringing snacks, um, make keeping myself hydrated. Like I have to treat myself like a little kid. Like, okay, you have to go take your nap now. Okay, you have to drink more water. Okay, you need to eat more vegetables. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. And I'm like, no, you have to. <laughs> so that's been probably the biggest thing, just being able to keep my hydration, my nutrition, and my rest up to be able to allow my body to do what it can with what it has <laughs> and um, not putting myself in a situation to make my body have to work any harder. <laughs> that was very well said. And I think those are such critical reminders. I mean, even though they're sort of the basics, right? Eat well, sleep, um, you know, stay on top of sort of time management. They're the things we all struggle with. And they're the hardest things because they're sort of the most basic. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the same way. I think snacks and hydration go such a long way. But it's so easy when you get in like the tunnel vision of work or school it's so easy to think, oh, I can just push myself a little bit harder or, oh, yeah. oh, you know, and so I think the fact that you're very cognizant of what you need to, you know, to feel well, you know, you've seen days where you haven't gotten a good sleep and thought, mm, this doesn't really work for me. And so I think the fact that you've kind of learned those lessons and, and, um, you know, intuited them into your routine is um, a great lesson for all of us. The other thing that in terms of like, just like keeping my nutrition and um, you know, hydration up. I do a lot of prep work <laughs> to do that because it, if I relied on myself every day to be able to like cook that mm -hmm. and bring those snacks and like do everything, I would just, if I had a bad day, then I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So I either meal prep all of my food on the weekends or buy pre-portioned meals that I then have throughout the entire week. So all I have to do, like when I leave the house or when I come home, was just take one of those meals out and heat it up or eat it in whatever state that it's in. And then I fill up a water bottle to bring with me the entire day. So, and pre-portioning snacks out, like so that you don't have to think about it because it then becomes like a, a chore for you. And then if you're having a day where you feel really terrible and you still need to maintain your nutrition, mm -hmm. then you already did the work when you felt okay. Mm -hmm. So that's been another tool for me where when I know I'm going to have like a really hard week or if I know that, you know, I'm kind of struggling, I'm going to do all the work at once to make my life easier coming in the future. I think that's a great tip. And yeah, it's, it kind of folds into that idea of treating ourselves like children and, yes. kind of, you know, using our productive time to, um, you know, benefit us in the future. And that, you know, goes into what you were saying earlier about just the unknown, you know, when, you don't, when yeah. you're not sure what the next few days will look like. It's, it's just, you know, it's more reassuring to be in a better um, position and just have options for when you can't do as much as you'd like to. Okay, we have to, I, I plan to feel gross. And if I don't feel gross the day that I think that I might, then I'm like, this is great. I have so much time now to do other things. But if it's just me coming home and eating something and laying on my couch, then that is what I will do. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, that is, that's a very... And that's okay, too, because mm -hmm. the other thing I'll mention with that is I'm a very, like, type A person, and so I feel like I have to be productive all the time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I don't feel well, I get really guilty because I'm like, oh, I really have all this, th all these things I have to do, and I, like, have to push through this. But there's, like, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. 
push through it all the time. And I think giving myself the grace and allowing myself to say, hey, I don't feel good right now. So I'm going to take a break Mm -hmm. because my body and my mind need a break right now. And if I do that right now, I'm going to be more productive in the long term. That's been really important because I think in our, especially for people who have EDS and kind of like me who don't necessarily fall into that like really affected category, don't make yourself feel like you don't actually have EDS, that you just have Mm -hmm. to figure this out because, you know, it's not really that bad, you know, Mm -hmm. doesn't affect me that much. It might affect you more than you know, Mm -hmm. and you might just be pushing through it in a way that isn't always the kindest to your body. So I have had to learn how to actively do that. I think that's a very important lesson and I completely agree. And yeah, it's just the more we can sort of be honest with ourselves about our limitations, it, you know, it's really, like you said, it makes us more productive in the long run, but I think it makes us better friends, better, you know, community members, because when we're not just going on autopilot, you know, dehydrating ourselves, you know, making ourselves feel miserable, not getting enough rest, it makes us more unpleasant people too. You know, it's like there's, there's real kind of follow through consequences and not, not to say at all, you know, blaming people who can't get enough rest or can't get enough nutrition. You know, there's a lot of really serious um, systemic barriers to, to people's improving their condition. But I'm just saying, I've noticed for myself that when I do cut myself that slack, like you said, you know, and you know, make sure I'm getting rest, you know, eating well. It's like, I feel like those benefits, um, you know, are, are really great. And it's important to focus on that because it maybe doesn't feel as immediately, you know, payoff in terms of dopamine as being productive and, you know, getting the things done that we need to get done. But in the long term, it's, it's a better bargain with ourselves, I think. It is. And I think it's a lot cheaper than medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if we can, and and also mm-hmm. I'm a big advocate, despite the fact that I'm a pharmacy student, staying away from medicines mm-hmm. is like not your first line of mm-hmm. being able to treat something. Just doing those kind of like lifestyle modifications can be so impactful. And so, I mean, even for people that maybe, you know, can't afford to buy like the, the best quality, all organic foods, like I buy stuff at Aldi. Like mm-hmm. I am very frugal in the way that I like make my lifestyle fit what I need nutritionally, but also like my budget mm-hmm. and the lifestyle I have as a student, which is very rigorous. So just taking the time to do what you can. So I think that any improvement is better than no improvement at all. Absolutely. I think that's tremendously well said. Um, and yeah, all these awesome. I also, <laughs> it always has that aisle of just random objects. That's so fun to peruse. It's satisfying. It very much is. It is. Yeah. Um, so how do you talk to others about Ehlers-Danlos, particularly people who are maybe unfamiliar with the condition? Do you have kind of a canned elevator speech that you give people or do you tailor it more to maybe what that person is curious about? Um, I would say I kind of judge it based on like what situation I'm in. So like if I'm talking to fellow healthcare professional students, they're going to know a little bit more about what I'm talking about. So I'll talk about it in a different way. But to the general non-health related public, I just talk about the fact that I have a genetic connective tissue disorder and so that I'm stretchier than everybody else. And so because I'm stretchy, my body does weird things and sometimes makes me feel kind of gross, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is my like very mm-hmm. um, informal answer to like what EDS really is. Mm-hmm. And then when people 
kind of ask about specific things. I'm happy to like explain the physiology of it because I think it's important for people from an awareness perspective for people who might not know like, oh my gosh, well, I have that. (laughs) Like that could be really important for them to know Mm -hmm. and giving them an opportunity to ask those questions. And I think for me, I could probably do a better job of like talking to people in my personal life about EDS because I've become so you know, numb to the fact that I even have it sometimes that I forget. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. I can't come to your party tonight. Like, I'm just too tired. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I have a genetic disorder. Like these people don't even necessarily know that that's why I'm so tired and I can't come tonight. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, I should be more clear about that. So people understand what I go through, but also like, what if they have that too, or they know somebody that has that. So mm-hmm. I definitely kind of give like a general answer of like the bendy disease, mm-hmm. but also can extrapolate when necessary. Um, and I think that there's very much appropriate times to do that. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way to do it. And that's it's a smart way to get the message out there in the way that it's going to be more impactful to people. So yeah, I think that's really smart. Um, and so it sounds like at least the process of getting diagnosed, um, ended up pretty being pretty, um, sort of serendipitous or, um, pretty, um, smooth sailing, but, um, in Virginia where you live, what is the awareness like in general for EDS and connective tissue disorders? Like, have you been able to find a a supportive medical team? You know, I'm working to build one right now. So I haven't had a lot of experience with healthcare in Virginia, most of my healthcare has still been based in my home state in Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. I came from Pennsylvania and moved down here to go to school. And so I'm still, even though I'm kind of an adult, I'm still in that place where like I go to my doctor's appointments during the holidays when I go home to visit my parents because I haven't actually transferred any of my like actual medical records to physicians here in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. But now as I start to have more EDS symptoms, I'm thinking that might not necessarily be the best situation for me when I need acute care down here. Mm -hmm. So I was really lucky to find a primary care that had experience with EDS. And that was also kind of serendipitous in the way that I found her. I have a friend that works in her office and was like, I think the doctor in my office focuses on the disease that you have. And I'm like, well, that's probably, that would be really surprising to me Mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of people that focus on EDS or have a lot of knowledge about it. Mm -hmm. And she sure did. So that was kind of nice to have a connection. So I'm starting to build people down here that know about the disease. I now go to a physical therapist that has a really great working knowledge of EDS and how to treat it. And so I'm starting to build that network. And we'll probably have to expand that network as I start to have other issues as I get older. And uh, I'll be here for a few more years at least. So uh, I intend to do that. And I think that one of the other things in terms of having connections with other people in your local area that have EDS, like we were kind of talking about before, is being able to bounce those doctors and practitioners that have a really great working knowledge and can make a difference for EDS patients, bouncing those names off of each other. And um I think that that's been something that EDS patients have really relied upon. And uh, I'll be taking my recommendations to my friends once I figure out if um, it's the right treatment path for me. That's great. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that it sounds like you're kind of assembling a team and that you have a plan for, um, you know, I guess, enlisting more members as that um, may become important. Um, Yeah, so that's great. 
Um, how did you become interested in science and uh, pharmacy in particular? Well, science was something that I always loved. From a little kid, I was just always like with my hands in some kind of thing that I was making something out of. And that was very natural to me. It wasn't something that I felt like was forced upon me and also was really encouraged rather than a lot of young girls, I feel like feel like they're pushed away from the sciences um, or like STEM in general, like math and engineering and technology. I didn't feel that way at all. So when I started to be able to choose my classes or talked about like what my favorite class was in school, it was always STEM. So I always knew I wanted to have a career in something STEM related, but didn't necessarily know what. And like people are like, oh yeah, get a science career. Well, there's a lot of different options to do that. So I had to figure out what would work and also had to figure out that it was okay if there were certain pieces of STEM that I didn't like because there would have been one somewhere that I did like. So it took me a while and a lot of different majors and ideas of what I would do. I ended up studying biochemistry and systems biology. Biology and chemistry were always my favorite. Uh, I was a lot better at biology than chemistry, but you need chemistry to understand biology and vice versa. So they kind of went together and I really enjoyed them. In terms of the pharmacy piece, I've always loved medicine. Like I've loved the idea of, you, you know, being able to understand disease states and being able to treat diseases. But quite frankly, I don't like touching people and I don't like blood. So I was like, I don't want to be a doctor and I don't want to be a nurse. So like, what am I going to do in medicine that doesn't, that I don't touch people or draw blood? Um, well, pharmacy sure doesn't do that. And I had worked in a pharmaceutical company for two years and was like, oh, wait, I could also be like a scientist that, you know, understands how to make medicine. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. You're still treating diseases. And I then was like, well, I could be a pharmacist and work for a pharmaceutical company. That would be kind of cool. So that was kind of the experience in that pharma company that led me to want to go to pharmacy school. And then, you know, gave me the opportunity to be able to learn really about, I mean, it's like mini medical school for sure. I mean, I'm in a cardiology class right now. I have to learn how to not diagnose, but how to treat like every cardiac disease state. It's much more focused on treatment than diagnosis. And that's the real difference between like a medical program and a pharmacy program. Hmm. Um, being the medication expert, understanding how I can make somebody feel better. I think that maybe part of that comes from my experience with EDS, but also my mom was a nurse growing up. And so she was always really cognizant about healthcare and disease and how to treat things. And so it was always something I was interested in. So that's kind of been my, my you know, crooked path of how, how the heck my love of science as a kid became me in pharmacy school um, much later. But it's been a really interesting and rewarding journey. Um, and I'm really enjoying being able to understand how the body works a little bit better. I learn a lot every single day about even some of the things that affect me. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about like orthostatic hypotension with EDS and dysautonomia and, mm -hmm. and POTS and the orthostatic tachycardia. Mm -hmm. And so like sitting through a cardiology class and understanding like how the heart affects like the, the different pieces of the heart and the cardiovascular system that cause that to happen, that there's medicines that can cause that to happen has been really cool for me to learn. So um, I really enjoy that. So it'll be a couple more years left and then hopefully I'll be a pharmacist and work somewhere in the pharmaceutical industry. 
That's a fantastic story. And thanks for sharing. I think it's great how you, you know, pursued what you were interested in, but also, you know, managed to recognize, okay, you know, I'm probably not going to be, you know, most effective in a, you know, as a physician, for example, because, you know, a lot of us are kind of more squeamish, I think. I, I also yep. do not enjoy the sight of blood <laughs> at all. So I think it's great that you've, you know, managed to combine your interests with, you know, what's going to make you um, most, you know, comfortable and able to, you know, sustain a, a path long term. So and then having the personal connection to what you do, just has to give such a sense of purpose to, you know, to that experience, which I've definitely heard that pharmacy school is very, very tough, that it, it's basically um, a lot like medical school and just a ton of stuff to learn. So I commend you. I thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think like EDS, pharmacy is a very misunderstood thing. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> People don't get what pharmacists do or what we know. And so, I don't think I even really understood it until I got into like the real program. Mm -hmm. But now I'm like, yeah, this is a very misunderstood profession. Mm -hmm. So just like, just like a lot of other pieces of my life. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. It, yeah. There's so many sort of examples of that. I, I'm an attorney and I, I also feel like we're misunderstood, but part of it is that, you know, most people's perception of you know a profession or whatever is going to be based on their personal experience you know with individuals in it and you know you don't necessarily see the bigger picture unless you know personal experience kind of gives that to you so yeah it's Absolutely. definitely um definitely interesting and definitely a very difficult field um and this kind of folds into my next question. So I saw a recent interview um, in which you referred to yourself as a science princess. And I really love that description. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in introducing you that you did a science experiment for the talent portion of uh, Miss America, which I think is so creative and so necessary. I saw it somewhere, uh, maybe your website, I think you said, I wanted to show that a scientist could be Miss America and that Miss America could be a scientist. And I think... Mm -hmm. That's such a strong message to, you know, girls and women that, you know, you can be curious and um, interested in science, um, you know, while also being into fashion style, you know, traditionally more, um, you know, what's thought of as, you know, more girly things or I guess whatever the common parlance yeah. is for that these days. Um, what has your experience been like as a young woman, a young woman in such a competitive field? You know, being a woman in STEM, I think, has been so interesting in this particular time period because there, I see a lot of equality in numbers. Like, I don't feel like a minority. Now, that's not true in, like, computer science and technology and engineering sciences. Mm -hmm. We see a lot less women in those fields than in a lot of the biomedical sciences. Um, so I don't feel like a minority at all. So sometimes I think I forget that a lot of women feel really repressed in the sciences. I have not gone through a lot of the discrimination as a woman in the sciences. I've been very encouraged, but I'm very cognizant that there are women that have and that I made it through my education without being discouraged from going into a STEM career. So I'm past that point. But there's a lot of data that shows that young girls, particularly before like fifth grade, like if they are discouraged and shown that they aren't good at science or math or, or maybe that those aren't careers for girls or that they don't see representation in those careers for themselves, by like fifth grade, you've kind of lost them, which is a really interesting and critical time period when you think about it. 
And so when I started to do this whole Miss America piece of my life, which is a whole other piece of my journey, I did a science demonstration because I don't sing or dance <laughs> and I needed a talent. <laughs> I needed to show that I was talented in some way and it's in a way that was authentic to me. And so I'm like, well, I love science. I can entertain people. I like, I can speak. I'm a, a good public speaker. And so I'm like, I'll incorporate this. And I was kind of inspired by another woman who had done this at Miss America prior, this type of a science demonstration. And so I kind of ran with it. And parents and kids and teachers went crazy for it. Like, we need a female role model for our young girls in in STEM. We need someone that they can look up to and really relate to. Not like a Bill Nye, not like the geeky science, mm -hmm. kooky, mad scientist guy, but like you. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> the little girls look at you and they're like, oh, cool, I could be her. Mm -hmm. And so I became like the science princess that would go into their school with my crown on and blow stuff up. And it was a very different way to approach STEM than a lot of the traditional STEM education that I had gotten as a kid that was very like mad science focused, which I loved because I'm actually kind of a tomboy at heart. So like for me, I wasn't the super girly girl. So that really related to me. But there's a lot of girls that aren't like that, that want to do like princesses and unicorns and ponies and glitter. And like, if I make science princess and unicorns and ponies and glitter, mm -hmm. then they're like, oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So it's a very unique take on it, but it's been really rewarding to then see the little girls and little boys, because it's not just for girls. I want boys to be able to see that there can be a very feminine professional woman in STEM so that when they get in the career workplace that mm -hmm. they're like, oh, this is normal. Mm -hmm. So it's beneficial for both genders. But I think that having those students and, you know, even STEM women, women in STEM as professional women come to me and be like, oh my gosh, I wish I had you when I was younger. Or, oh my gosh, Miss Camille, I just love science so much. And I love that we did this today and I learned so much. Like those are really rewarding moments. And I think the, the really grand scheme of the whole science princess thing that has come about was a demand in the market that wasn't met. <laughs> and not to put it in business terms, but like I did something because I was trying to solve a problem and then it solved a problem that a lot of other people had at the same time and then produced a lot of interest around the work that I do. So it helped me and it helped them. And so it's been something that continued through my Miss America experience. And as I now transition out of my time as Miss America, is something that will continue and is something that I uh, really look forward to being able to do with students because I loved the outreach that I got as a kid. And um, it's definitely something that those students need just as much as I did when I was a student. That's awesome. That sounds tremendously smart. And I often think about how important it is to talk to kids on their level and meet mm -hmm. them where their interest is. And, um, and it's, I think it's so great to have, you know, your approach to teaching science to be, you know, one option of many. So, you know, kids who are kind of looking for who speaks to them um, can, you know, hopefully find the, the role model who, um, you know, fits what, what speaks to them. And so that's, um, 
yeah, that's really um, inspiring and um, sort of brings me to my next topic. Um, you're also a strong advocate for the safe use of medication, um, including your partnership with Safe RX, um, which makes locking prescription bottles, which mm-hmm. sounds like a really great idea. Um, are there additional changes that you would like to see um, to help patients be more aware of the risks associated with the medications they take? Oh, gosh. Yes. So many. Um, You know, I think we have this perception that, you know, medications are inherently like really safe because we got them from a doctor or like we buy them in Walgreens or a pharmacy and they're over the counter. So like they can't really hurt us. Like they're just on the counter. Like I can just get them. They shouldn't. They're not dangerous. But it's so untrue. And there can be so many issues that can arise with medications that are prescription or over the counter that people, that lay people who aren't pharmacy related people don't necessarily recognize. And I didn't recognize until I really got into this field. So, I mean, I do a lot of different things with the medication safety. So, in terms of just preventing poisonings with kids, that's part of where those locking pill vials come in. Keeping your kids away from medicines in the home. Um, only allowing them to have those when you are very much reading the directions as a parent and paying attention to how much they're taking and being the advocate to make sure that you are giving them the correct amount per the directions that your doctor gave you. Um, Being a safe prescription owner in terms of if you have controlled substances in your home, keeping those away from other people, your kids, other people that might come into your home. Um, And just being a responsible consumer of these products. They're meant to do a job and they're meant to alter our body in some way. If we use that incorrectly, it's going to alter our body in an incorrect way. Mm -hmm. So that has become kind of a common theme that I focused on. So parents and kids with medication safety is something I'm passionate about, but also substance misuse has become another piece. So... Mm -hmm especially with controlled substances, misusing prescription opioids, misusing really a lot of different controlled substances, selling them, giving them to other people, um, not taking them as your doctor prescribed. Um, The risks that can come about with those in terms of addiction, particularly for people that have a family history of addiction, and how those things can happen and how quickly they can happen. Now, It's been interesting because the chronic pain community doesn't really like my opinion on opioids because I am very cautious of opioids because they have a huge addiction potential, um, both physiological and, and, you know, um, psychological. Mm -hmm. You can have quite literally dependence on the medications, but also come into this psychological substance use disorder, which can be, they're really two different mechanisms, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're really dangerous medications. And yes, there are plenty of people in this world that do need them um, and that they're appropriate treatment for those people. Mm-hmm. But there, I think there's a lot of people who get those medications who could benefit from alternative therapies. And um, that's where pharmacists are very misunderstood because we really become the medication experts, I think, in a way that doctors are, I think, the diagnostic experts in some way. And we can be the medication people that come in and help that decision be made more appropriately. Um, and not everybody likes that opinion, but when we're talking about things that can can be really, really detrimental, and when I say detrimental, I mean they can be fatal mm-hmm. if not taken properly and really, like, 
lead to long-term struggles Mm -hmm. in life with substances. I've seen so many stories of people that were prescribed an opioid like Oxycontin after a surgery and found themselves dependent on that medication, turn to heroin, turn to other street opioids and lose their life over something like that. That's not a rare story and that's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So I have become an advocate for that because I I don't ever want that. I never want to be the pharmacist that hands someone an opioid and they don't come back the next week to pick up a refill or come back the next month because they lost their life. Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's the problem that I have. Um, and so I've become really passionate about it and it, it very much aligns with my passion for medications because, you know, they're so powerful in such a positive way and they can make such a difference, but they can do some damage too. So that's been a lot of the work. That's actually the primary role of my job as Miss America is to further that initiative. And that's something just like EDS, is, which is very <laughs> misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, the job of Miss America is to promote her own social impact initiative. And that was mine. And that is, again, work that will continue far past um, my time as Miss America coming to a close. That's great. And, you know, I absolutely agree. I think there needs to be better. I mean, kind of the problem with opioids in particular is the message that many patients got was, oh, this is benign. You know, this is this medication just works great. It'll fix your pain, you know, without really inadequate discussion or understanding maybe even of the possible side effects. And then you get the pendulum that swings, you know, we have this horrible circumstance that's arisen, you know, with many people, um, you know, falling into uh, substance use disorders or addiction and, and the social sort of damage of that. And then you see the pendulum swing to this other extreme where you hear about people not getting adequate pain control after surgeries and after they injure themselves. And, you know, we know that some kinds of pain, if they're treated early on, you know, nociceptive pain can sometimes not morph into neuropathic pain. And so, you know, a lot of chronic pain patients kind of find themselves in the middle and it, it, it is a, an incredibly, you know, complex issue, obviously, but I do completely agree that, um, education about, you know, the true nature of the risks and benefits of really all kinds of medication um, is, uh, you know, hopefully in the future and seems to be in patients' best interest. That is so true. And when you talk about the misinformation from a lot of the companies that put out these medications, Mm -hmm. if anyone's not familiar with Purdue Pharma and the lawsuits that have been around that company, Mm -hmm. they made it sound like Oxycontin wasn't addictive. Mm -hmm which is just so completely inaccurate that it was false advertising mm-hmm. at its finest. And um, that's that's the core of like what would be really difficult for me in, in terms of patient education. That patient needs to be advised of what the risks of that medication can be mm-hmm. um, and make that appropriate choice for themselves if they want to take that therapy. Um, but if you're not provided with the correct information, it's hard to make that. So mm-hmm. that's a that entire piece has been difficult. And yeah, opioids will 100% take your pain away. They're really good at that. And that's why they're abused because they have effects that are far beyond really any other medication that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's they're really good at their job, mm-hmm. <laughs> too good at their job sometimes. Uh, but there's there are plenty other options um, 
that can make make patients feel great. And I think that that brings me to another point about pain management in general as an EDS patient and in life. I think we've also been kind of taught that our pain should be zero. Mm -hmm. And part of that goes back to the way that these companies marketed the pain medications, Mm -hmm. that your pain should always be zero. Your pain should be as low as possible. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of pain that we're going to feel every day. And if we have a major injury, it's very normal for our body to say, hi, we have pain here. Mm -hmm. Now, does the pain interrupt your ability to, to do daily activities? Does it interrupt your ability to have fun and, and be a happy person and be a whole human? Mm-hmm. Then, then we have some problems. But do you have some aches and pains that bother you or come and go? And, and how do we figure those out? And can we make that person – like I know that I'm, I have pain all the time. Mm-hmm. But I don't reach for pain medications often because I'm like, okay, it's normal. I get that I'm going to have pain. But we've been so – um, kind of programmed to assume that it should be zero. And that's not realistic. And I think that that is a lot of the issues that we see in the healthcare system. And as patients, we need to be to understand that it's okay to have pain. Um, but when it starts interrupting your ability to do daily things, and when it starts making your life difficult in a way that's abnormal, mm-hmm. that's when we start to look at it. But that's a really big misconception. I think that's a really important point to make. And I'm really glad that you're, um, you know, thinking about these issues because I agree. I think, you know, a lot of the marketing around those opiates was, you know, why live with pain? You know, pain is unacceptable. We've cured it with modern science. And, you know, I think we've all kind of intuited that message culturally a little bit that there's a chemical solution to the way that we feel. And so we can just keep going And I mean, pain is a very useful signal from the body. I mean, they've done studies about people that don't feel any pain and, you know, they get injured very frequently and, you know, it's devastating. And so, you know, obviously there's conditions like Ehlers-Danlos where pain is more prevalent and it it does often, you know, hinder life, but um, it's often telling us okay, we need to, we need to make a change here in some way, or, you know, it, it often is providing some useful information. It's just, we've, we've learned to have this hostile relationship with it. And I, I, it's just, it's really unfortunate that we've swung from, oh, pain should be zero to, uh, you know, basically take a Tylenol and walk it off, even if you just (laughs) spine surgery. And it's like, your pain shouldn't be a zero and your pain shouldn't be a nine either. You know, it's like somewhere in the middle is great. (laughs) Yes. And, and learning to understand your own body and your own limitations and, okay, is this the kind of pain where I'm going to, you know, be laid up for three days and I really need to lay down? Or is this something I can, you know, just focus on my coping mechanisms and work through? And, and that's, a, that's a difficult learning process, I think, for many of us. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. Um, but it's, it's important for us to kind of just be candid upon, like, what's realistic in our lives mm-hmm. and understanding from providers um, what are alternative options for us? Absolutely, um, and how we can how we can work that into our daily lives. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely. Well, we've covered so many amazingly important topics, and this has been a phenomenal discussion. Um, I really appreciate your time. I want to get one last kind of fun question at the end. Sure. We had so much kind of heavy discussion. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of skincare because I find it uh, just kind of, well, I mean, A, there's so many issues I sort of had to have learned to <laughs> treat, but I think it's just sort of a nice way to right, remember to take care of yourself. And I don't know, I, I really enjoy it um, and I've learned a lot about you know how our hypermobile skin is has some kind of different qualities but um, I've also kind of learned to appreciate all it does for us um, do you have a specific regimen or I don't know any tips for oh gosh anything to say on the topic the funny thing for me is I was the person that until I was probably like 24 was like I'm supposed to wash my face question mark <laughs> I really never took care of my skin, and my skin has fared really well through that. Um, I always had really, really dry skin throughout my whole life, and I still do. So my skincare was always just like another layer of moisturizer on top of another layer of moisturizer. Now, as I, I don't want to say get older, I use CeraVe products. I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce that mm -hmm. brand, but those that's like a typical brand. You can find a, pretty much any drugstore mm -hmm. or like big box store. I really like their like cleanser. It has hyaluronic acid in it and ceramides. It's not really too harsh on my skin. It doesn't dry it out more. So that's been a really big benefit. And I use their moisturizing cream in a big tub to keep my skin from drying out. So I'll wash my face at night and then put on that cream. And so that's like my skincare routine in a nutshell is those two things. But I also, I just worked with um, a brand with these, it's a natural skincare brand. And I had never tried facial oils at all. And this brand, it's called Mayfield Glow. It's a black owned business, um, single woman who owns it. Um, she sent me her golden goddess oil. I think it's mostly vitamin E and some other like oils in it. I don't know the makeup of it. Makeup of it. Makeup of it. <laughs> it's probably proprietary. It is like the best hydrating, lightest oil I've ever put on my face. And it like calms down any irritation I have on my skin. Nice. So that one is great. So that's called the golden goddess oil from Mayfield Glow. I love it. So that and my CeraVe products are really all I use. But I'm um I'm not really up with the whole skincare game. So you'll have to give me some tips because that's definitely not my area of expertise. Gladly. Well, and definitely thanks for sharing. I also am a huge fan of oils and I'd avoided them for so long because I have really oily skin, but I ah. find they can be actually really balancing and kind of correct different issues. So yeah, it's been so nice to learn about all that. So, well, thank you again for sharing. Um, this has been just an incredible conversation and, um, I've, I've learned so much and, um, yeah, it's, it's been a really, um, a pleasure having you as a guest. Um, uh, any listeners who are out there, you can follow, um, Camille Schreier on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and we'll include links in the bio for the episode for her website and um, some of her uh, videos of her science presentations. Um, so Camille, thanks so much for joining us today. And um, yeah, everyone else, see you next time on Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thank you.